Well, good morning. Can I add my welcome to Nate and Judy's? Hasn't it been great to celebrate together? Uh, what a year. In amongst all of the pain, all of the challenge, all of the hardship, God has been faithful. And isn't it good to see some of the good things that he's done in amongst all the ways that we've also uh, messed up and got things wrong along the way. Uh, and today, uh, as Judy and Nate have mentioned, we continue our human series where we have been going back to basics, back to the very beginning, Genesis 1 to 3, the, the earliest account uh, of all that we are as humanity. And as we begin, I'd love you to imagine something. Imagine for a moment that in five minutes' time, the entire contents of your phone or computer or iPad or whatever will be made public for the whole world to see. Every text message, every WhatsApp, every email, every website you've visited, everything you've watched, everything you've written, everything you've bought, every note you've taken down, public for the whole world to see. In five minutes, anyone will be able to look at it. How would you feel? Now, now imagine adding to that, not just those text messages that you've sent, those WhatsApp messages that you have sent. What about those that you drafted and never sent? The emails that you wrote and then you deleted. Those phone calls you wished you'd made. Those notes that you scribed down and then deleted. Everybody could see those and hear those. How would you feel? Well, the reason for that little thought experiment it's an attempt to show us something that we all know to be true, but we spend a good chunk of our lives trying to hide. Because over these last number of weeks in this human series, we've seen how good the world we live in is. And we've seen something of the beauty that we as humans carry with us. And then last week, Judy began to show us something that we also know to be true. That in amongst the beauty, in amongst the glory, in amongst the, the preciousness that we all carry, there's some flaws, some wounds, something deeply wrong. And these images that Stuart Tonge has been kind of creating all through these uh, weeks has been brilliant, particularly this one that kind of unpacks something of Genesis chapter 3. And we called this series Human because of the Rag and Bone Man song a few years ago. A brilliant song all about kind of a relationship and some of the challenges that have gone wrong with these lyrics. I'm only human after all. Don't put your blame on me. It's an honest statement. Don't expect perfection because I'm only human. And behind those words, we see something that we see described in these early chapters of Genesis. In amongst the beauty and the amazing world we live in, in amongst the hints of glory that we see within ourselves and the majesty in every single person, we know that we're not the gods that we sometimes pretend to be. And as Judy looked at last week so powerfully, one aspect is the shame that we carry in the way we try to hide. And today I want to reflect on three things that I think help us build on that and get a handle on this problem that we all face. 
You see, one of the things about church and about Christianity is there's an uneasy relationship with a key word that we don't like using, and that word is the word sin. And we either think of it as a sort of naughty but nice type thing. You know, slimming groups talk of sins or uh, club nights are sin. You know, sort of naughty, bit nice. Or we think of the word sin as a sort of judgy, condemning word. That act is a sin. Them over there are sinners. Harking back to the sort of street preachers, all fire and brimstone. Well, I want to suggest that what the Bible says about sin, and as we see in Genesis chapter 3, is really good news for all of us. And if we get this right this morning, I think we'll have a healthier attitude to ourselves, a healthier attitude to each other and our relationships and every interaction we have, and ultimately a healthy uh, attitude and relationship with the good, gracious God who is behind all of this. So we're going to see three things. We're going to see the diagnosis that we all have, the journey we all take, and then the choice that we all face. And we need to see something of the bad news to see quite how good the good news is. So firstly, the diagnosis that we all face. Today, here in the UK, it's census day. Have you done yours yet? The purpose of that is to get a snapshot of our whole country on any given day. But if I had a chance to redesign the, question, the census, there's one question that I'd love to introduce to see what people's reactions would be, and it's this. What are you trying to hide? It'd be interesting if people were had to write that down. What are you trying to hide? What feedback we would get? What attitudes, what experiences, what fantasies, what habits... What behaviours would utterly shatter your life if other people found out about it? Well, we find the root of that challenge in the book of Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 2, we've got this description of God creating the world. And in amongst all the beauty, there's one restriction, just one. One guardrail that God gives. Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good of evil, for when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. Here they are. God's given them this amazing paradise, amazing food, all they ever need. They're there, two perfect specimens of humanity and naked to boot. It's kind of like Love Island, all the good bits without the bad bits. And there's just one thing that you don't do. Why? For your own sake, for your own safety, just don't do this one thing. And so we get to chapter 3 of Genesis. And what do we see? Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The one thing in amongst all that they had, the one job they had to be careful about, and they decide to do it. And what the writer is getting at in this amazing moment is is one key truth that underpins everything about us. 
What's really going on is not about an apple or not so much about a serpent or things like that. There's something much more profound. What Adam and Eve are doing as they take that fruit is they're simply choosing to be their own gods. And it's that that underpins so much of the rest of the Bible and we know underpins so much of our stories. We can't stand the idea of not getting what we want. The diagnosis we all have is that. I mean, I've often wondered about the tree. I mean, what was so special about that tree? And what does the fruit represent? I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, why does it have to lead to death? What's going on? It's just fruit, isn't it? But I've begun to realise that perhaps that's the point. This isn't about tree or about fruit. In that moment, we've got a very vivid picture. You see... By not explaining why they shouldn't eat the fruit and by not explaining why it would have such devastating consequences, God is simply asking them to trust him, to take him at his word. He's proven himself to be so good and kind and full of grace and provide for all their needs. And so trust me, he's saying, if they have to know why before they choose to obey, if it has to make sense to them before they choose to obey God, basically God's no longer calling the shots. They are. And so we see in this act, it's not just a sort of minor naughty little transgression, like eating cream cake or using a naughty word. No, they're effectively saying, thanks for getting us this far, God but I know better than you, I'll take it from here. And that's why it makes sense that the consequence is so serious. After all, if he's the giver of life, he's given them the very breath in their lungs, all that they need, and if they're therefore turning away from the one who gives life, the source of all life, the only consequence is death, because it's therefore now on their shoulders, and they can't give life. The moment we turn away from the source of life, we're heading away from life itself. It's a bit like saying to an airline pilot, go on then, off you go, I'll take it from here. I've had enough of you. It's not going to end well, is it? And so, friends, this simple diagnosis that we all have is it's, it's not so much just specific bad acts, or ways that we can use to kind of judge other people's morality. Now, when the Bible talks about sin, it's better to think of it more like a virus that infects us all. And sure, there are specific symptoms that we see in our life and around the place, but those symptoms, those acts, aren't the real deal. It's the underlying virus of us wanting to be the gods of our existence. This struck me a few years ago. Uh, when uh, my, my son Noah was probably about three or four, uh, we lived by a busy road. And we'd, of course, always told him from the moment he started walking, you know, be careful of the busy road and don't go on the road and all of that. And yet one Sunday, I remember it, some friends were visiting uh, and he decided to quickly run across the road without looking. And my sort of, you know, stomach went through my 
roof or whatever the saying is. Fortunately, there were no cars coming, but he'd been given one guardrail for his own safety. And he didn't necessarily understand the consequences of it, so he just chose to go against it. And that little snapshot showed me something about my own life, that the heart of all turning away from God is simply wanting to do my own thing. It's pride. It's trusting me rather than God. And so that's the diagnosis that we all have. But what becomes really clear is when we see the journey they took to get there. And this is where we come to our second point, the journey we all take. This moment in Genesis is often referred to as the fall. But in truth, that kind of dampens it a bit, you know, as though they fell over. Oops. Actually, what's going on, it's more the defiance or the self-promotion or even the devastation. There's nothing accidental here. They deliberately usurp God, the good, loving, kind creator. And this becomes clear when you see the journey of them taking God's place. So look at how chapter 3 begins. This is uh, what, the, uh, what happens, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Simple question, did God really say? Well, well let's look back to the, what we just mentioned earlier in chapter 2, where we find out what God really said. Here it is, Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from, any, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. So did God say you mustn't eat from any tree? No, no, he didn't. The serpent's wrong. But for the first time, a seed has been sown. God's words have been cunningly questioned. A little glimmer of doubt. Up until that moment, they've known that God is so good, giving them all this amazing stuff. I mean, it was paradise. But now just the glimmer of doubt creeps in. A cunning question indeed. Does God really have my best interest in mind? Are these guardrails that he's set up really for my own good? And all of us, I want to suggest, begin here. They wouldn't have got to the act of rebellion if they hadn't started just questioning what God says and the motives behind it. Because look at what happens next. Eve rightly corrects the serpent. Verse 2, the woman said to the snake, we we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Do you see what she's done now? She corrects the serpent, but then she subtly twists and changes God's word. He didn't say you mustn't touch the fruit. He just said, don't eat it. And so now in that little moment, she's made God appear harsher, more vindictive. Subtly twisting his words. A seed of doubt has been sown, and now the doubt is growing. Is he really on my side? Has he really got my back? Are these guardrails really in my best interests? 
And of course, the next step, having questioned them and twisted his words, well, verse 4 is pretty obvious. The serpent says, you will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. There it is. For the first time, his words are directly challenged. The message from the serpent is clear. You'll be all right. He's just a spoil sport. You know best. You're worth it. Cling. And you can imagine the thought in Eve's mind. Yeah, God's got it wrong. I know what's good for me. I'm, I'm in control. I know that he says, don't do this, but I know what I really need. Who does he think he is anyway? And so, of course, the logical progression from there, verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, it was good for food and pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. God's words are now actively disobeyed, directly abandoned. Do you see the journey? Every step, a step up towards sitting on the throne and booting God off it. They get what they want, and yet in that moment, they discover the emptiness that the one thing that they wanted to have was then found empty, because what do they then do? Hide. That journey, I want to suggest, is one we all so often personally take. He'll be all right. It won't cause me any harm. Just this once. No one noticed last time. Made me feel good. No one got hurt. We know better these days. And even in the moment when we try to do something good, if you're anything like me, we easily end up feeling smug about how good we are and critical of others who aren't quite as good as us. We make it about us. I remember a, a few years ago, before Claire and I got married, a good number of years ago now, uh, we were going out and it was late one evening, we were in London, we were catching the train from central London, uh, and uh, I remember this homeless guy coming up to me and said, spare some change, mate. And I remember saying, no, I, I won't give you some change, but I'll tell you what, shall I buy you a drink? And we remember stood in the queue for upper crust. And I remember as I was stood there wanting to do a really good thing for this homeless guy, do you know what was going through my brain? I bet Claire thinks I'm pretty impressive. Even in a good deed, I made it about me. And I want to suggest that the way the Bible describes this is really good news for all of us. That although we so often try to hide it and try to present otherwise to everybody else, we have a universal addiction. Every human is stunningly beautiful and yet tragically broken, which leads me to my third point, and it's this. We all face a choice. We said earlier that this good news is so good, and yet we often can't face the reality of it. And I would imagine there are some people watching right now who are quite cross. The idea, the mention of the word sin brings up a sort of heritage that makes you shudder. All of this talk of sin is just internalized hatred or trying to control other people. Just leave all that behind, be free, get on with your life. But I want to suggest 
that this is good news because it makes sense of so much of our experience. And it also enables us to deal with the pain that we all experience from time to time. Let me explain. C.S. Lewis was once asked about why it was that so many people who don't believe in God, atheists, why are they such good people? His answer was stunning. He said this, well, they have to be good, don't they? If you don't believe in a God who forgives, you're damned to unrelenting goodness. Damned to unrelenting goodness. Wow. I think he's got a point. Just look around our culture right now and you see outrage everywhere. And while some of the things are obviously right corrections about injustice, I can't also help but think that some of the outrage is about defining who is good and who isn't, who's in and who's out. And of course, it's always the people who happen to agree with me, whatever the particular viewpoint is. The famous singer-songwriter Nick Cave described this brilliantly recently. Listen to these words. He was talking of the outrage we see on social media and all around the place, and he wrote this. The once honourable attempt to reimagine our society in a more equitable way now embodies all the worst aspects of, that religion has to offer and none of the beauty. Moral certainty and self-righteousness shorn even of the capacity for redemption. It's become quite literally bad religion run amok. He said this, mercy is a value that should be at the heart of any functioning and tolerant society. Mercy ultimately acknowledges that we are all imperfect and in doing so allows us all the oxygen to breathe, to feel protected within a society through our mutual fallibility. Without mercy, a society loses its soul and devours itself. That's an incredible quote. And what he's getting at is this. It's only when we acknowledge that we haven't got it all together, that we're flawed. It enables us to be kinder to ourselves and kinder to those around us. And I would guess that there are some right now who are almost overwhelmed with despair. That you can't seem to shake that habit. Or you feel that somehow others seem to have it all together and you're the odd one out. And you're doing your best to pretend that you've got it all together. And you know deep within you there's hidden stuff that you even shudder at. Or simply you spend most of your time comparing yourself to others. And for others of us, it's maybe we don't despair at ourselves, but it's others that we despair at. You know, it's so easy to criticise others. And yet, if you're honest, you know you haven't got it all together. Or in our relationships, we're constantly disappointed at other people, our partner, our friends, our parents, our colleagues. Or even for some of us, the past, things in our own family history, our own personal story that we just despair at. Friends, I want to suggest 
that the good news of this is that it enables us to discover mercy and grace. If we deny the brokenness and flaws, we've got to have it all together all the time and we criticise others when they don't seem to. A while back, as I head towards a close, a while back I was speaking to someone from a different faith. Uh, And they believe that God basically weighs your good deeds versus your bad deeds and decides whether you're righteous enough or not. And this person was an amazing person doing some breathtaking things for the community. Lovely, lovely person. Doing really good. But I remember as discussing with him thinking this. I'm not good enough to have your religion. I can't bear that. Because I know what's within and I'd simply have to pretend all the time. And I wonder if that's the discovery that Adam and Eve make. That they get all that they want and yet they discover that it is empty and so they have to hide. Friends, the heartbeat of Christianity is this. That we haven't got it all together. We don't need to pretend. And friends, that's the kind of church we want to be. Where we don't present we've got it all together, but we present and show the one who can do something about it. Because, friends, we face a choice, and it's this. Do you want to try and be your own God and sort it all out? Or do you want God to sort out the mess that we're in? That's it. Because later on in the Bible we read some amazing words in which Adam and Jesus are compared. Paul writes this in a letter to a church in a place called Corinth. He said this, For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Do you see the choice? Do we try and substitute for Adam? And we want to be our own gods and go the way we want to go? Or do we want God to sort it out? And friends, the good news is this. God so cares about you, so loves you, so wants to rescue you that he has done something for you when Jesus stepped in your place. And the response is this. There's another Bible word. The word is repentance. And again, sometimes we don't like the idea, but simply that means to turn around, change your mind. What we're simply saying is this. The choice is yours. Do you want to try and be your own God? Or do you want God to be God? And let's turn around from walking our own way away from him and let's turn towards him and say, God, I want you in my story, knowing that as I do so, there's amazing grace lavished on us by our loving creator, God. So I'm going to pray for us. And you may find it helpful in the stillness to close your eyes. You may want to hold open your hands. And I'm simply going to pray asking uh, that, that God would help us turn to him. And in your own words, whatever that is, you may want to say something similar to say, God, I turn towards you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you 
that when we realize we haven't got it sorted, we thank you, we can turn to you and see that you've done something about it. And in that amazing grace, we say thank you. Lord, we want you in our story. We don't want it to be about us. Even now, Holy Spirit, would you help us turn to you, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.